0: Hello and welcome back to the new book, Indian Religions, podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Shankar Nair, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Department of Middle Eastern and South Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of Virginia. We'll be speaking about uh, an exciting uh, new book, Open Access, called Translating Wisdom, Hindu-Muslim Intellectual Interactions in Early Modern South Asia. We'll also be talking about the role of this book in an upcoming panel um, at the American Academy of Religion. More on that a bit later in the podcast. Um, for now, uh, welcome Shankar. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Raj. Uh, pleasure to be here and I'm glad we're finally able to make this happen. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we were trying to make this happen, and then someone else scooped you up before me, I believe. <laughs> Which podcast were you on? Uh, New and Islamic Studies. But from what I understand, you were pretty savvy, and you decided to withhold certain content, hoping you'd be on this one as well. Is that correct?
1: Uh, that's right, yeah. Uh, I'd gotten someone's permission, in fact, to be on both, and so I, I sort of explicitly... I, I told the other uh, podcaster, I'm not going to talk about Hindu studies here, I'll just focus on Islamic studies. And then uh, afterwards... Um, I was told, nope, you can only do one. Um, so I haven't yet had a chance to podcast about the sort of the Hindu study side of the book. And I'm really grateful you're giving me the chance.
0: Well, it sounds like you're in the right place. <laughs> and uh, the stars have aligned, so to speak. Now, translating wisdom, um, i mean, the, 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 what you're looking at is so fascinating to me. What's this book about?
1: Uh, so, uh, it's about many things, um, but uh, uh, I suppose the simplest answer to it is um, I'm, I'm trying to find an angle into the phenomenon of um, Persian translations of um, Sanskrit texts, usually what we call Hindu Sanskrit texts, in the early modern period, during, during the Mughal period. Um, it's well known sort of bibliographically that there was a concerted Mughal effort, um, a, a push to, to translate a large body of texts, uh, but the field has hardly begun to sort of examine these texts in any detail. Um, most of the field so far has focused on, uh, rightly, uh, examining these translations as a sort of political act. Um, it's it's part of statecraft, a part of uh, Mughal imperial self-fashioning, uh, which is all true. Uh, I'm just trying to take a different angle on the text, and uh, that's a bit more theological, a bit more conceptual, a bit more philosophical. Uh, many of these translations were done with teams of Hindu and Muslim scholars uh, working together, Persian pundit, uh, Sanskrit pundits and Persian scholars. Uh, I'm trying to retrace the ways that these uh, groups working together drew from their own intellectual traditions, literary traditions, philosophical traditions, Islamic on the one side, Hindu on the other, and found a way to speak to one another, found a way to make sense to one another. Um, How do we uh, think with and between our our two traditions to translate a term like Atman, a term like Moksha, a term like Avatara? I tried to retrace those processes And um, my sort of window into it is by looking at one particular translation, uh, the Laghu Yoga Vasishta, which was translated numerous times into Persian. But I'm looking at one particular translation, uh, which was completed in 1597. So uh, to, uh, unfortunately, as is so often the case with these translators, especially the the Sanskrit pundits, uh, we know next to nothing about their identities biographically. It's hard to even know where they came from. So I, I have to try to scramble and, and produce a method. Uh, and what I try to do is uh, look at the sort of broader landscape. What is the um, the status of, what, what are the sort of current ongoing debates, the, the current top debates in the realm of Sanskrit philosophy at the time in Persian scholarship and Arabic scholarship? And I try to show how uh, elements of those largely isolated discourses, right? They're almost like modern academic departments that have nothing to do with one another, don't talk to one another at all. I try to see how in the specific venue of translation, wisps or elements or, or, or little um, um, little, yeah, wisps of what's going on in those separate worlds come together to help uh, effect translation.
0: So then your project is a historical one where you are aiming to understand the world behind the text primarily is that the case
1: the, the bulk of the book is spent on those sorts of efforts yes but i, I, I aim at other things i, I
0: have other goals
1: um mm-hmm. i have something to say to that's uh,
0: what that's why I, this is why i pose the question in that way is that all <laughs> the book is about or what else are you doing in the book
1: no it's not it's not uh, <laughs> um, um Um, So, yeah, the the way that I try to frame it is, um, so I'm I'm making certain interventions in Hindu studies and Islamic studies, and I I try to also make an intervention in religious studies in general. Um, I suppose I'll start at that last one, which is, um, I've I've long noted and and sort of kept track of uh, discussions in um, religious studies about the prospect of of learning from the other, whatever that might mean, Um, the prospect of trying to move beyond the the Europhone, Euro-American canon, um um sort of comparative religion had its day and then sort of uh came under heavy critique and um it's 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 floundering right now um and so i feel like the field's been sort of spinning its wheels for some decades now there's goodwill for a kind of uh effort to um learn from the other dialogue with other civilizations other knowledge systems I would add that it's sort of never been more important than it is right now for, for us to do that and, and pluralize in that way. Um, but we don't yet have a program, I don't think. There's no consensus for, for how to do it, how to go about it. And so my proposal is, um, look, let's look at history. Um, I would argue that we have a, a case with, with this particular translation and this particular translation movement of uh, two groups. Um, who sort of came of age in relative isolation from one another, so sort of Hindu intellectual world and the uh, Muslim intellectual world. um, um, They sort of came to maturity in isolation. They didn't grow up together. And here now, they're trying to craft a conversation. I simply want to look at um, how they crafted their conversation, I would say largely successfully, and see if we can learn any lessons from them um, for how we can uh, address similar issues in our own discipline today of religious
0: studies. So, You mentioned in passing, but unpack a little bit about the impetus behind this this translation endeavor. Uh,
1: The Persian translation of the Sanskrit text.
0: Yes, yes. What was behind it? Uh, What was the agenda? What was it for? Um, 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 Why were Mughal rulers commissioning translations of Sanskrit texts into Persian? Right, right. Bare bones of it. Like, why was that happening?
1: Right. Um, So, uh, as an imperial project. undoubtedly right. Uh, um, statecraft was, was a core piece of the project. The Mughals at the time are, are, one of, um, three major Muslim empires in the globe. There are also other empires in central Asia. Um, and, and the, the Mughals, you know, they, 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 want to project themselves as, as, uh, um, a powerful flourishing empire. Um, so of course, Emperor Akbar is, um, the first of the Mughal emperor emperors, um, you know, born and raised in South Asia. He really, um, changes the way that the empire is cast and, and and tries to project it as a south asian empire you know of south asians for south asians um, um, no longer referencing so strongly the the central asian heritage that um, the mughals um, hail from um, and so in in crafting this um locally south asian uh um sort of uh, um profile or image uh akbar has certain difficult choices to make he also at the same time has to keep competing with the Safavids and the Mughals, the other two major empires. How do you do that? Um, the right choice, it's a smart choice is to focus on Persian. Um, and, and, um, Akbar starts promoting Persian, pouring, um, a, a vast patronage into Persian, um, because Persian is the sort of common language The Safavids work in Persian, speak in Persian, the Ottomans as well. So it's, it's a language of an international prestige Thus, accomplishing one of Akbar's goals. Um, but Persian also works well for the local context of South Asia. Uh, it's not Arabic. Arabic still has this sort of inescapably Islamic identity about it, and hence would be alienating for, for non-Muslim populations. Persian, yeah, it has a long history with Arabic, but it's not. It's 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 more pliable. Um, it's it's more neutral. Um, um, and uh, to the extent that it's not considered neutral, Akbar will exert efforts to, to cast it um, that way. Um, so it can suddenly, be, it can be uh, be promoted in a way where it can become a language of sort of pan-Indic learning. And sure enough, it doesn't take long for there to be a, a large body of Hindu scholars, Jain scholars, Hindu and Jain bureaucrats. Um, to be an educated person in this period is to know Persian. Uh, continuing that um, goal of, of uh, appealing to right, the local South Asian masses who are majority non-Muslim, Um, you show them that you, you care, you care about the heritage, you care about their knowledge, you care about their culture. Um, by translating all these Sanskrit texts into Persian, it's a way of sort of showing that, um, this corpus is part of who we are as the Mughal empire, right? Um, your heritage is part of, of, of who we collectively are. Um, and, um, lastly, I'll say that, um, uh, there's long been a, a tradition of Persian rulership. Muzaffar Alam teases this out uh, better than anyone else. Um, a long Persian um, sort of strategy of rulership of um, wherever you're ruling, you you um, draw from local models of, of kingship and, and, and rulership um, that have, right, um, governed this area for for however long they were doing it in, what we now call Iran, they're doing in Central Asia. This is a continuation of that process, translating texts, models of kingship and uh, um, royal behavior, um, elite behavior for a South
0: Asian context. So with respect to this particular text, um, uh, the Lago Yoga Vasishta, why interest in this text in Mm -hmm. particular?
1: So on the surface, uh, it fits right into uh, the framework I just laid out. Um, This the story, um, uh, the the text that's gotten, thankfully, gotten a bit more attention in in, in recent decades, and and deserves a whole lot more. It's a fascinating, wonderful text, but um, it uh, uh, it, its hero is is Rama, the same Rama as the Ramayana, though at a a younger stage, Uh, he's still a prince, and he's sort of grown completely averse to the world um uh he's he's become depressed he has no interest in in fulfilling his princely duties um uh and uh, dasharatha is worried his father's worried <laughs> um and so uh um uh, eventually rama comes into conversation with um with the the sage Vasishtha, who takes rama through um sort of successive stages of learning uh, deeper and deeper uh, uh, arenas of knowledge. And uh, the text will, will tell us that eventually right, Rama comes to moksha. Um, but it is not an iteration of moksha that requires him to abandon the world, right, to go and become a sannyasi. Um, rather, it's a moksha that um, obliges him to remain in the world, to keep fulfilling his his dharma, his duty to be a prince, but nevertheless remain rooted in this liberative knowledge, um, um, moksha and jnana. Um, so on the surface of it, it, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's uh, a model of, of kingship, um, not just the Mughals, but the Safavids and the Ottomans as well. Um, um, there's a, a shift at this time to sort of projecting Muslim kingship in the language of the Sufi Sheikh, the, the sort of enlightened spiritual, um, um, almost philosopher king, you could say. Uh, and so this text plugs right into that um, wonderfully. Um, uh, and that again, would be the way that the field would usually, um, um, uh, explain the interest in the yoga Vasishta. Um, my intervention, my, my, my addition to this, to this narrative and sort of complication of it is to look less at what, uh, what the emperor's interests are and, uh, try to consider the actual scholars who are translating it, what interests them. And there, I think, uh in very significant measure that's not been appreciated enough till now, there's a philosophical interest. There's just a kind of search for truth um, um, that that's also at play simultaneously. And uh, I think you you look at the passages that get the most attention among scholars at this time, um, you look at some of their translation choices, um, 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 and I think you see um, um, convincing traces of uh, just sort of a philosophical interest in the text as well. The Yoga Vasishta was a bestseller in South Asia. It, it had uh, the Sanskrit Yoga Vasishta, it, um, it, it had a remarkable ability to be popular amongst a, a wide array of sects um, from North to South India, Vaishnavas, Shaivas, people who usually don't agree with each other. The Yoga Vasishta was appealing to all of them. And um, the Mughals, the M- Muslims were also part of par- uh, part of the audience. Um, they just enjoyed this text, I think, for what it had to teach. And I think you see evidence of that when you um, analyze the translation in the way that I have.
0: I find that particularly insightful insofar as, you know, I joke to myself that if only, um, if only we humanity scholars took account of human beings, <laughs> <laughs> and how, and how human beings worked, and and one can get so mired in 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 theoretical models and, and, and methods and texts, and how do people work? How do people roll? Um, there's so much thirst and interest and fascination in the wisdom of ancient censored texts. You know, uh, currently that probably has been the case at various epochs in history and that people would be so mesmerized by this tale of of this 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 um this young prince who attains liberation then moves on to, to to rule nevertheless um that's a that's a gripping narrative encapsulation of 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 wisdom you know spiritual truth so that piece i think um what do i know about this period really what appeals to me is yes, well, it would make sense that there would be some interest in this beyond, beyond um, the obvious, um, um, a political agenda, so to speak. Right, right.
1: We have, um, um, you know, yogi Sufi interactions occurring all over the place in this time period. Um, you know, people way outside of the of of any courtly context who are, you know, pursuing conversations with with the quote unquote other um uh, you know yeah to my mind there there's an, um, um clear evidence of just a kind of uh, a literary interest a philosophical interest um uh you know sans uh, you know advaita vedanta is sort of on the rise in this time period uh, 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 one among a few uh, several iterations of you know, Hindu non-dualism, as, as we call it. Uh, the Ibn Arabi tradition of philosophical Sufism is also, it's hot. It, it, it's very popular um, in uh, in Arabic and Persian and, and other Muslim um, circles at this time. Um, you know, I just think we have a case of, of, of scholars, of individuals um, um, who are interested in knowledge and interested in truth, um, who saw a kind of kinship here and wanted to learn. Um uh, and what I think is sort of interesting, we often hear um, sort of in passing, a formulation of this period is as, as characterized by Sufi Vedanta encounters, uh, which is true, but it's also not quite a complete answer. Um, um, you, you see uh, numerous moments in, in the textual record where Advaita Vedanta, as we usually classically think about it, right, the, the Shankara Advaita Vedanta, it, it's actually metaphysically a bit confusing. For a lot of Muslims Um, It's an iteration of Advaita Vedanta Doesn't make any sense Mostly because Brahman is completely passive um, Which doesn't really mesh with uh, Islamic uh, non-dualist visions Of a a, a dynamic and active uh, uh, Absolute divine creator um, uh, Who sort of dynamically projects the world Um, So uh, what we normally think of When we say Advaita Vedanta Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, To Muslims in this period The Yoga Vasishta it had been appropriated by the Advaita Vedanta tradition by this time, but its origins are not um, from, from that school. Uh, and so interestingly, this, uh, it took this iteration of uh, a kind of Indic non-dualism to capture the imaginations of Muslims, which it most certainly did. Again, the text was translated and readapted numerous times, whereas we don't find a lot of straightforward, again, quote unquote, classical Advaita Vedanta translated. Um, so it is a a Sufi Vedanta encounter in a certain way, but the picture is also much more complicated and, you know, you only tease out something like that when you pay attention a little bit to the philosophical and theological details.
0: What's your data for this book? What sources are you looking at? What, you know, what, what you look at.
1: Right. Uh, so the Sanskrit text of the Lugby Yoga Vasishta is, is, is a, is a minefield, (laughs) um, uh, there's been a group of colleagues in, in, in Europe, especially specifically Walter Slahe and Jürgen Haneder, um, who have done just fantastic work retracing the very complex textual history um, uh, of this text, the Sanskrit It has Its origins are in a, an earlier text um, that comes out of Kashmir called the Mokshopaya, and it's a sort of complicated process by which this text gets shortened and redacted and sort of recast and reframed and, and modified to become the love yoga vasishta I don't have to go deep into those manuscript waters thankfully but um, um, that's how we get to the Sanskrit text that uh, or something close to the Sanskrit text that these scholars would have had when they were doing the translation um, and then on the uh, Persian side um, we have uh, this is the the 1597 translation is one of the earlier ones, uh, done by a team of three scholars. Jagannatha Mishra Banadesi, Patan Mishra Jajipuri. those are the Sanskrit pundits, and then Nizamuddin Panipati would be the, um, the, the Persian Muslim scholar. Um, this is the particular Persian translation of the Yoga Vasisha that I'm looking at. Dara Shako would later do another one. There are numerous other ones that also deserve attention, but I just focus on this one translation for my purposes. As I mentioned earlier, um, my method, um, there's just no archive to recover much about the translators. So I have to look at the broader Hindu scholastic world, uh, Arabo-Persian scholastic world around them. The way that I do that in the book is I focus in on three figures who are roughly contemporaneous with uh, the, the, this Persian translation uh, and who in differing ways had some connection with um. Uh, the interpretation of the Yoga Vasishta. Uh, uh, I start with uh, Madhusudana Saraswati, who is uh, one of the most influential uh, scholars of Advaita Vedanta at this time. I look at um, the ways that he's interpreting the Yoga Vasishta in his own way and certain debates that he's uh, um, uh, having um, uh, in his own career. Uh, I look at a primarily Arabic writer, though he also wrote plenty in Persian, Um Uh, A Muslim um, Sufi and part-time philosopher, I would say uh, Named Mohibbala al-Lahabadi One of the most well-known representatives of the Ibn Arabi tradition at that time I, again, tried to show how certain uh, uh, contributions that he's making To uh, Arabic scholarship, Persian scholarship, Islamic scholarship Finds its way into the way that this text gets translated into Persian And then lastly, I look at Mir Fendereski uh, who's uh, a fascinating Iranian uh, philosopher who uh, just had a kind of love affair with South Asia? He he was pretty well set in in Iran. He was a very successful fellow. Uh, he was he was uh, known by and and appreciated by uh, uh, Safavid rulers. Um, But he just seemed to seek escape, and he just had an interest in India, to love in India, as many Iranian uh, intellectuals did uh, at this time. So he uh, made numerous extended journeys into South Asia, sort of mysterious journeys into Mughal territory. Um, We have a a, a delightful record of of his time there, um, though, of course, difficult to reconstruct with historical accuracy. But in any case, at some point he came across this text um, and um, uh, wrote a commentary on it, in fact. um, uh, which is a fascinating commentary. And uh, that wasn't enough for him. He also sort of edited down his own condensed version of the text, where he just, he took the Nizamuddin the, Panipati the translation and just sort of excised, cut out his own favorite portions, and then restitched it together into a shorter text. This is called the Muntachabe Jogbasisht, selections from the uh, Yoga vasishta um, um, and then uh, inserted uh, Sufi poetry into it as it sort of seemed to strike his fancy, which I would argue was another kind of commentary. Um, Which were the parts that he pulled out? You know, surprise, surprise. It was the metaphysical portions, epistemological portions, soteriological portions. He took out almost all of the stories, in fact, um, and just focused on the sort of didactic bits. Again, an indication of just a a kind of search for truth, a philosophical, theological, literary interest in the text. Um, So using these three figures, um um, um and, and, and their own careers, their own work. Uh I try to show how elements of what they were doing worked their way into the Mughal court and influenced the way that this uh Yoga Vasishta got translated into Persian.
0: Is there currently an audience for these texts? Are they just historical relics? what, what is their current use if any? Uh
1: yeah. So um uh, we all know uh, the the hotly contested <laughs> uh, uh, history of the Mughals in, in South Asia right now. In in a, in a in a general and very politicized way, it's it's, it's a very hot topic, and of course we have uh, rivaling factions and rivaling political powers who are trying to paint uh, completely different versions um, of this history. So, in a kind of general, uninformed way, um, texts like this. Um, 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 Will will pop up, um, and and we'll, we'll gain sort of passing mention, um, but largely I would say um, the just the sort of skills and the knowledge base to read a text like this has, has largely disappeared, um, and so um, you know part of my hopes in this book are, are that. Um, um, this could be part of a, of, of, you know, a sort of more a revival of, of a, a more attuned um, um, look at these texts. There There's no doubt that there's a thirst for it. But for various reasons, intellectual, uh, curricular and political, um, they've become relics that are mentioned but not understood.
0: There are two things that you that come to mind that I'd like to comment on just very briefly. Um the first is in terms of uh, hot button issues, politicized issues, um, takes on various things. I get the odd correspondence very, very rarely um, uh, regarding um, the reluctance or the the the, the absence of, of 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 calling someone out or or, or taking something on. Like um, one of the things that I think it's cl- is clear to the vast majority of listeners of the podcast, is that my my duty and my pleasure is to showcase the features of that particular work. Um, my particular uh, bent methodology, whether I agree with the conclusions, or the methodology, or the ideology informing it consciously or unconsciously, it's all the same to me. My job is to present what the work is accomplishing on its own terms. And so I want to make that clear for those listening. This is what I'm doing. This is what we're doing. We're looking at um, knowledge production. You may not agree with it. You may want to critique it. But critiquing is not what is done here for the simple fact that I have the podcast host on. And while I'm hosting, the one in front of me is a guest. And there is this beautiful dictum that the guest is, guess what? God. (laughs) So why would I argue with God? (laughs) (laughs) I want to make that clear because it had come up in my inbox a couple of times. I thought to myself, uh, do folks not realize this isn't a conference? Critiquing is not my role. Prompting questions that pertain to critiques, surely. Uh, Gently pushing back for the sake of argument respectfully, surely for conversation but it's not my duty nor inclination to pronounce judgment on any of this stuff. I find it all fascinating and worthy of sharing with the world. Um, enough of my diatribe about the methodology <laughs> of this podcast. I mean, I imagine you understand what I'm I'm saying. You probably heard oh, very much some so. episodes. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I, I don't pretend to stay blind
1: to that in the book. Um, I have noted in the sort of the, the Twitter sphere, of blogosphere. I'm not on Twitter, but I've so friends have sent me a couple facet comments of people who sort of just read the conclusion of the book. It sounds to me, and then sort of you know judge the whole thing with you know um, a, a political agenda. Um, you know, pretty clearly behind the um, the comment. Um, but uh, you know, I, I do try, insofar so far as I can, with an, an already very full book. Um, you know, to to to, to lay out the sort of the political stakes, the contemporary stakes. Part of that is, is my message to religious studies, of course, but more generally just, just for South Asia and, 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 you know, what I hope this book might mean for um, um, people enmeshed in, 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 you know, very urgent questions right now, you know, there's a kind of technique in a lot of, 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 uh, um, Mughal history scholarship where, you know, we make the move that historians always make where we say that you know my job is just history and we need to understand things on their own terms we need to be careful about judging the past through a modern lens and all of that is 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 right on and um and I, I make very similar qualifications um throughout the book um but I'm, I, I don't want that to then become an excuse to make this just irrelevant um, and so to make these materials just irrelevant, I want them to be alive. I want them to be usable and meaningful to people today. And so the caution that I offer in the book is, um, again, through this lens of, of, um, um you know, learning from the quote unquote other, how do we do this, um, in a responsible way and an effective way. Um, part of what I want, uh, uh modern readers to do is uh, on the one hand to, to, um, um, be aware of our political presuppositions on all sides of the debate, all sides of the aisle. Um, uh, it, uh, uh, it The sort of liberal voices in academia, we can often be blind to our liberal presuppositions and we can pursue uh, a sort of, uh, however, subconsciously uh, a, a, a perception of the past that is one of tolerance, that is one of, of of, of good times, the exact opposite of what South Asia is today, more or less, right? I'm simplifying and being a bit um, terrible, but um, a great, uh, probably the majority of my book, in fact, um, uh, isn't actually about the moments of contact and dialogue. It's actually about the moments of um, uh, Hindus and Muslims completely ignoring one another, um, having their own intellectual worlds, Madhusudana uh, Saraswati, the Hindu Advaita Vedantin, writing with no reference to Muslims whatsoever. Right, they've been ruling South Asia for centuries, and um, you you get an area, even even a word, even a half sentence that, that, that that's the case. Um, there's been a habit in Hindu studies to to sort of to sort of say that you know this is a sign of the Sort of astounding navel gazing of, of, <laughs> of the Sanskrit intellectual world, almost like ostriches with their head in the sand, um, just not seeing the way things are. Part of what I want to do in the book is to say that there are actually good principled intellectual reasons for them to um, take the approach that they did. Um, and it's, it's kind of a respectable scholarly stance in, in, in certain um, uh, in certain ways, again, just as you said, you might not like it, you might disagree with it, but there's really good reasons to ignore the other and, and to think that you're not really worth my time dialoguing with, and it doesn't have to translate immediately into into violence, into um, contention, into 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 hatred, um, and so. I try to, in my own way, address the kinds of concerns that you were just, uh, diatribing about, <laughs> um, by, by trying to paint both sides of those pictures, um, really good reasons for these scholars to ignore one another completely. And then also trying to, um, reconstruct the process by which they did occasionally. And for certain reasons, um, 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 try to understand one another and, um, I think we can today learn from both sides of this picture, not just the, um, you know, the tolerant uh, uh, communication side.
0: Well, you've just preempted at the end of that, of that uh, response. You've preempted what I wanted to ask after next in terms of what you mentioned in passing. You know, what can be learnt in your view from this encounter? that might be of use to folks today in, as you call it, encountering the other? Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, um, yeah, part of it would be what I just said. Um, I think that um, cumulati- cumulatively across the texts and the scholars that I, uh, I, I examine in this book, you find uh, numerous, very intelligent iterations of... Um, uh, Right, the the the, the, the usual uh, sort of crisis for for, for um, um, people today, uh, crisis isn't quite the right word, but um, the, the 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 alternatives are often presented to us in terms of a kind of. Um, uh, thoroughgoing cultural relativism. On the one hand, <clears throat> we need to respect all people and they're free to have their own thoughts. Um, and um, uh, you, you have your truth, I have my truth, and and um, um, uh, we just sort of leave it there and and respect one another, which is often unsatisfying for those, particularly of a philosophical or religious persuasion, who you know want to make a claim about an absolute truth. This, this is just true. There, there's nothing relative about it. Um, and, and something about faith and something about religion often seems to demand that, um, and, which takes us to the other side of the picture, where uh, uh, a thirst in right many human societies around the globe today, where they, they want to stake a claim to a sort of absolute truth. Um, you know, don't try to relativize me. Don't try to... Um, 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 restrict my ability to just say when I think something is false, when I think something is wrong, uh, that I have to sort of bow down to uh, this uh, overarching umbrella of, of, of tolerance and respect. Um, um, I think with it, across the text and the figures that I look at in this book, we find numerous al- iterations of an alternative way to seek a kind of middle road, uh, a way where you can make a claim of absolute truth. Um, without that having to result in a, a simplistic kind of oppositionality, um, as we see, right, typified across the globe today, not just South Asia. Uh, I think we see, uh, versions of this, um, uh, this kind of dynamic, these, these two alternatives, um, butting heads with one another. Um, we need something different. We need a middle way. We need something more intelligent. I think these figures offer us, um, uh, resources for thinking about that. Um, I think also uh, there's numerous things I'd say, but I'll just uh, end with this. Um, um, This is a message for religious studies. It's also sort of a message more more generally. Um, When these two communities, the Hindu scholars I'm looking at and the Muslim scholars I'm looking at, um, when they sat down to sort of craft this dialogue and, and, and find a language to make sense of one another, they started with metaphysics. That was where they, um, seemed to gravitate towards, we, we have to get metaphysics straight first. So that's just a fancy word for truth claims, right? Um, what we take to be true, not just sort of, um, 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 not, 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 not just mental constructions in a kind of a imaginative fancy way, but you know, what do we take to be true? What, did, what do you say? What do we say? We have to start our dialogue there, getting that straight between us. Um, in religious studies, certainly, that's not where we start. Right? We 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 um um we, we don't do metaphysics so much anymore. Um, um, there's uh, numerous factions of religious studies which will um, even take a stronger stance that you know we 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 shouldn't we we cannot do metaphysics that that that's foreign uh, to our uh, character as a discipline, um, uh, and uh, I think that's led us to some of the roadblocks that that we're at right now. Um, um, so, uh, I would point not just to this example, but numerous historical examples of civilizations crafting a dialogue with one another. Um, often you find the starting point is sometimes it's epistemology, often it's metaphysics, um, surprisingly often. And for us to, uh, um, fairly uniquely maybe in all of history, try a very different approach eschewing metaphysics. Um, maybe there's something for us to learn from that, that, that it might be a wrong headed approach. So that's certainly true of religious studies. I would, I would say, you know, even, um, you know, just global conditions in general, um, um, metaphysics is sort of seen as an arcane enterprise. we, even in sort of non-academic interreligious, uh, um, initiatives and, um, um, into religious dialogue and things like that. Um, uh, th- there's just something about modern thinking that um, often shies away from starting with something like metaphysics. Um, but that's not what the historical record shows us for some of the more successful moments of dialogue that, that we, we, we've seen in human history. So that might be something we should try to learn from and, and reimagine how we approach it today.
0: So let's maybe... Take a moment and uh, just unpack or dig into this point about metaphysics, just to make it a little more more clear. Um, are you uh, so in saying that religious studies doesn't really do metaphysics anymore? And uh, uh, um, would the, if you can wave a wand, you had a magic wand, right? A magic metaphysical wand. If you could wave a wand. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, w- would the field of religious studies uh be engaged in the academic study of metaphysical claims more or be taking stances on metaph- so metaphysical claims you know what, what would that look like uh, and the second part of the question is where is the proper space currently for metaphysics metaphysical discourse would you say right right excellent questions and uh
1: I'm not going to wave that wand because I don't know.
0: (laughs) I'm going to hold. No, don't wave the wand. Don't wave the wand. Just tell us about it. We, you know, we're attached to the way things are right now. Please don't wave the wand. Just tell us
1: until I have a better idea. I'm not going to wave it quite yet. I don't want to make a worse disaster. Um, But uh, I'll just say this: Um, there were very, very compelling reasons for the field to turn away from metaphysics. Right, um, the the imperialist era, the orientalist era, an era of uh, 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 you know a set of scholars um, coming out of uh, the Europhone world who you know came out with a sort of hubris. You know, our methods are true. We have captured knowledge. You know, every other civilization is 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 um, you know something lesser in comparison. There's a whole assumed set of truth claims, a whole assumed um, metaphysics there, which judge the whole world <laughs> and the results are, are horrifying. The results are, 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 are right, just awful. Um, um, the critique of that and the move against that, the move to um, create this kind of protective umbrella, uh, let's stop the business of immediately judging other cultures. Um, the power dynamics are just atrocious. <laughs> um and uh go about things another way right let's analyze cultures on their own terms we're not going to ask if it's true we're not going to ask if it's right um um but you know we're going to respect them and uh, um, um um let their culture be their culture with their own norms their own mores etc cetera, etc cetera. we analyze that we look at that that's interesting we can ask certain questions um, but let's just shove aside the business of uh, um, trying to finally adjudicate um, you know, which one is superior, which one is inferior. Excellent, excellent reasons for our field to make that move. Um, but I think the the problem we come up against is if, if we do really want to take seriously this, this call in religious studies that's been going on for decades of learning from the quote unquote other quote, we often see this phrase, taking the other seriously. Uh, I don't know how we can do that um, with this sort of protective umbrella in place um, now. If I wave that magic wand right now and we started doing metaphysics again, I, I'm deeply skeptical that the field has pluralized enough, right? That it's um, 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 you know that there's enough representation of non-Christian or non europhone voices, that there's a sufficient body of you know robust scholarship from other perspectives. Uh, I don't. I'm deeply skeptical of that there's yet enough of that entrenched in religious studies to avoid a similar kind of bias playing out again and the same sort of Eurocentric perspectives and assumptions would end up dominating once again and judging the other, um, um, hopefully with a little bit more care and nuance than from the age of imperialism. But, you know, we know the way power dynamics can often play out in the Academy. So I don't know that we're there yet. Um, and, uh, uh, and that we're not only, I don't know that we're epistemically plural enough. Um, In fact, I'm sure we're not. Um, So what I suggest in the book is that, you know, we, we, even in Hindu studies um, sort of ironically um, um, uh, as that sort of orientalist air has come under increasing critique at the same time, just my own um, passing perception, I feel like less than ever are we actually engaging as a field with, you know, pundits from South Asia, uh, people, you know, great scholars who came out of a, a completely different kind of curriculum and a completely different kind of formation. Um, I think we engage with those voices less than ever, um, which is a bit ironic as the, the, the hubris of Orientalism is, is um, 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 you know, coming under increasing critique. Um, we need to revive something like that again. Um, But if we revive something like that, again, we need to do it in a way where it it doesn't have the same effects as it did the first time, right? Um, Where uh, their knowledge just gets sucked into and subsumed under our umbrella, um, the juggernaut of uh, the sort of modern Western academy. Um, But rather, we need to go about it in a way where they are more equal players on the field. Uh, um, And... and, um, their voices, however uncomfortable they make us, however much we might disagree with them, however foreign it might seem to us, um, gets a legitimate voice on the table as much as our own. That's very difficult to manage. Um, um, but <clears throat> I think certain lessons can be learned from the historical case study that I, I look at in the book.
0: As difficult to manage as that phenomenon would be for scholars, I imagine it would be... Um, even more so for individuals who are scholars at the academy and also belong to a paradigm. Uh, recently, I, I had uh, Frank Clooney actually on the podcast, on the Life Wisdom podcast, but the ones that pertain to religion in South Asia, they, they're cross posted, as is the New Books Network's um, general policy. Um, and so, what does one do when one, um, I'll use myself as an example. Um, I learnt the Devi Mahatmya from a traditional Indian guru. I learned it verbatim. It's chanted verbatim across the Indic world, particularly at the Navaratri Autumnal Goddess Festival. And uh, whether I'm chanting uh, or listening to chanting from priests in, in Tamil Nadu or whether I'm in Chennai, whether I'm in Pune, it's the same text. Now, if I go and I read Coburn's translation of the text... Um, from what I'm seeing, Coburn's using the same source as what I have memorized. Yet at the same time, the impetus will be on me to find out if um, he's using uh, which critical edition is he using. Is using boundaries. Is it different? How is it different? So there, of course, there is this tension between. Uh, Emic modes of transmission and knowledge, and the manner in which we study at the academy, and of, of course uh, they're both valid in different ways. Nevertheless, this tension is very much alive, um, probably insoluble. Although I think we can find, um, we probably can find more evolved ways of handling it, and that's probably part of what we're all struggling towards, uh, turning towards. Uh, as academics who are mindful of these things and who who embody these very tensions. Um, your book is going to be featured on a panel at the American Academy of Religion. Is it so? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and what is this panel? Uh, you, you may have gathered that, you know, um, uh, my questions are purposely naive. I'm not as, uh, probably not as dumb as I pretend to be on this podcast, but you never know. Some days... Some days I don't have to pretend too much.
1: <laughs> I the um, I the <laughs> uh, oh, good. <laughs> if anything, I'll, um, I'll, I'll take the blame for going way too deep in the rabbit hole with every one of your questions and not going to places I probably should go.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's always about this unique route. The questions are always meant to be generative. I don't have a particular agenda. Let's just see what, what, what you know what's what's spoken, what's uttered aloud in the moment, as part of the oral tradition of the podcast. Um, <laughs> this this speaking of oral tradition, it's one of the things you love about conferences. You know, speaking aloud, hearing live, embodied experience. That's something that hopefully we'll be able to again uh, experience in a uh, unimaginable post COVID world um, uh, in November. Every November, there is a, there's the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion, massive, largest, you know, guild of religious studies. Um, and who knows if it'll happen in person. I imagine that it will because, you know, four months or so is a long time um, given the current rate of vaccinations and all that. We'll see. But either way, uh, the uh, Hinduism unit um, has arranged a panel called uh, called New Books in Hindu Studies, I believe, which happens to be to have been the name of this podcast for some time. So I'm not sure if there's any kind of cross-pollination there. I don't know about that. But I do know that I'm happy to put the panel on people's radar. Um, it will consist of two pairs of books. So Translating Wisdom uh, will be discussed in tandem with Pat and Burchant's genealogy of devotion, we've had Pat on the, on the podcast. We'll link uh, his his podcast in the podcast notes of this one, um, just to so get a sense of how we're going to run these consecutive um, panels, uh, uh, raising awareness about the panel. Um, so, so why are, why is your book um, being discussed with Pat and Burchant? what's going on there have you read the book is it any good what's he talking about or are you or what, what, what what why are we discussing these in tandem in tandem what's happening there um yes Patton's book is is wonderful highly recommended um please
1: please go out and, and, and take a look um um I suppose uh I suppose the reasons we're being paired together uh, is a similar time period um um, and, um, similarly looking at this, uh, you know, the, the quote unquote Hindu Muslim divide, however problematic, we, we both pro- problematize that in our own ways. Um, but, um, so Patton is looking at, um, uh, a more, um, lived level on the ground level. I would say he's looking at interactions between Sufi communities and Natha Yogi communities and, and other kinds of Bhakti groups, um, and, um, the ways that their, uh, lineages, you know, intersect and cross-pollinate, and um, um, owe a great deal to each other. And, and in fact, there's a to a significant degree a, a real shared universe there, um, shared ritual grammar, shared shared set of techniques, um, shared goals. Um, um, he's working in more vernacular materials, um, um, again looking more at at, at, at at communities and their formation. Um, um, and, and so, in, in in that ways, we're we're sort of very nice complements uh, to one another. I would say. And so this is, I think, the second and maybe third year that the um, Hinduism unit is is uh, doing this new books thing. Um, um, I think it went great last year. And so I'm, I'm honored uh, to be a part of it this year. But basically, yeah, the, the so our two books, Patton and my books, are paired together and then two other books are, are paired together. Um, um, and um, we're supposed to sort of, you know, talk to one another. Summarize one another's projects, um, ask questions, probe, push, um, and uh, uh, put our two books into a a certain dialogue with one another. Um,
0: So uh, that's the objective. I I love it. I love the concept. Yeah. No, it's obviously, you think I'd love a panel called New Book? You, you think i would enjoy a panel called new books in hindu studies anyhow but i love the 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 the, the, the samvada the, the the dialogue right authors dialoguing and that's so fruitful it's so fruitful I, i've learned so much speaking to the author as well above and beyond reading the books you know it's a different mode of engagement
1: yeah, and you really do at least last time you um,
0: you really do see connections emerging that that you you didn't see before um, and, uh, and well, that's the power of conversation. Exactly, that's the power of cross pollination. That, that's you know, yeah, you know, like organize these events for the OCHS, these online weekend schools. And listen, I mean, the only downside to putting them together is I wish I could attend them without having to host them because <laughs> <laughs> because you know you have ten you have ten like world class scholars on the Mahabharata, and you know this the one coming up. And I'm sure after two or three talks, or by the end of the day, you know your synapses are firing with all of the connections that you're really seeing emerge for the first time, at least in your conscious mind. Um, so it should be a fascinating panel. I really hope to attend it in person, uh, uh, you know, God's willing. Uh, <laughs> um, and we'll have one. It just so happens that we've already had Pat on, so we'll interview you uh we've in, we are interviewing you and then referencing it. And then for the next pair, we've already had uh, Leah Como on for uh, talking about material devotion in a South Indian poetic world. And uh, her conversation partner for the panel, uh Vijaya Nagarajan, uh, um, author of Feeding a Thousand Souls, will have her on shortly. So it should be uh, this is this is a sort of an unprecedented, I think, confluence of online content and, and academic pr- production, it seems to me. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Uh,
1: I hope we don't let you down. Uh, please do come, one and all. Um, it'll, it'll be a good time.
0: Yeah, it should be fascinating. Is there anything else about translating wisdom that you hope we touch on? Uh, let's see. Um yeah, I suppose I should have come up, I should have
1: mentioned this earlier, <laughs> but um, uh, the 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 book also uh, um, tries to contribute to, um, I suppose, if there's any one question that that is somehow relevant to all of Hindu studies, it's that age old construction of Hinduism uh, 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 query, um, you know, was Hinduism invented in the colonial period, was Hinduism um, invented in conflict with Muslims, is, is Hinduism uh, Sanatana Dharma, right? Um, uh, and so uh, I, I do engage particularly It's two, two fruitful avenues that have been taken you know, in the past decade or so are to, you know, push the origin question before colonialism, right? Maybe it was in conflict with Muslims that uh, some kind of nascent Hindu identity emerged. Uh, David Lorenzen perhaps has pursued this um, um, most uh, fervently um, um, and, and very effectively, I would say. Um, and then Andrew Nicholson added uh, another um, angle to this question in his book, um, uh, Unifying Hinduism, which looks at the specific genre of doxography, um, these, these, these Sanskrit texts that sort of go through each uh, rival school one by one and sort of give a catalog of, of their views. Um, and um, um, through looking at doxographies and Madhusudna Saraswati's doxography, the Prasthana Veda, uh, played an important role in, in his argument that yes, in sort of uh, in facing the Muslim threat as he calls it, um, we do indeed see in these doxographies a, a nascent Hindu identity emerging, even if the word isn't yet used. Um, I try to complicate this, and I I give the fuller version of the argument in an article that just came out in the uh, Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society. If anyone wants to look there, uh, but there's a shorter version of the argument in the book where I, I try to complicate this. And uh, basically, what I say is, if you—and uh, this is part of, you know, part, part of w- w- what I was saying before—where the interest of the book is not just to look at uh, uh, the confluence of traditions, but also how they ignore one another, and, and trying to cast a different light on um, Sanskrit's uh, um, overwhelming unwillingness to to address Islam in any way, shape, or form. Uh, uh, basically, what I try to do is uh, Mother Madhus, Sudena has other doxographies that he's also written. And if you look there, um, the sorts of features that Nicholson was highlighting as evidence of a kind of Muslim threat, a sort of fear of the Muslim threat, they're absent from the other doxographies. And Mother uh, Sudena's other doxographies are also more sophisticated. They're more philosophically advanced. So... Um, um, uh, uh, Carl stefan uh, Boutiet has recently written a, a whole book about this where, where, where um, he goes into greater detail, but I think my, my intervention is, is, is very compatible with what he's trying to argue, which is that these doxographies are, are, are their teaching tools. Um, they're introductory textbooks, you could say. They're trying to um, shape individuals into just a way of approaching knowledge and, and, and a way of thinking. Um, so um, rather than reading these doxographies as, you know, Buddhism and Jainism, why do they keep talking about Buddhists and Jains and these doxographies? Um, Buddhism's disappeared. It's gone. Um, and the Jains are gone. By the way, the Jains aren't gone. Let me just, a little aside here. <laughs> the Jains are very much alive and well and still active in South Asia. And it's a travesty that they continue to be utterly ignored. Um, but regardless, rather than reading uh, um, uh, uh, the continued engagement with Buddhism and Jainism as a kind of uh, uh, coded way, of uh, addressing Islam, right? Covertly um, or codedly. Uh, I say, no, when you look at these doxographies as teaching texts, there's important intellectual work being done, right? In, in religious studies, let's say, I mean, most of the field uh, um, thinks Eliad is, is, is worthless by this point, right? He's useless, no, no one should follow what he does. I think that's the majority opinion in the field right now, but Eliad is still on our syllabi. Right for a sort of introduction to the field of religious studies, you, you gotta address him and understand him and and, and know him to understand uh, uh, where the field is today. And it, it's not just some sort of meaningless historical overview. Um, rather, to understand what motivates contemporary religious studies questions and how we pursue knowledge and the ways that we don't pursue knowledge, you gotta you gotta you know you gotta know your Eliade first. Um, and so similarly. Even if Buddhism is no longer um, active um, on on the South Asian stage right now, thinking through Buddhist objections, thinking through um, um, Buddhist views is essential to um, becoming a properly thinking uh, um, Advaitin philosopher today. So with that sort of reframing of the doxographies, um, I suggest that the the Muslim threat um, angle, um, um, it's, it's not a convincing reading of these doxographies. What I read in Mother Suthana's doxographies is a kind of brimming uh, confidence in uh, his own Sanskritic tradition to provide everything that's most meaningful, right? Moksha, jnana, um, in some contexts, dharma, uh, a sort of a way of life. Um, we don't need to look anywhere else. We don't need to study anywhere else. We don't need to engage Uh, anyone else that might strike us today as being very insular sort of problematically closed-minded but there's principled intellectual reasons for why uh, I think um, Sanskrit scholars took that route. And I think if we look at our own habits as scholars today um, you know, well, you know we in religious studies we know we, we, we don't talk to other disciplines all that often we don't we don't have vibrant conversations with economics all that often we don't have vibrant conversations with even political science all that often even though we're often asking similar questions but going about it in very different ways uh, we stick to our own tools we stick to our own skill set and have conversations amongst one another um, so um, uh, and and I, I don't think we would characterize our our, our own uh, um work as um, being reactive to the threat of, of other disciplines, other forms of knowledge, what have you. Um, so I think we simply have a, a case of um, 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 teaching texts that are uh, promoting a particular kind of intellectual life, and there's just no need to, um, to respond one way or another to something like Islam. And this, I think, takes us back to the point I was, I was trying to, to tease out earlier, of um you know that there's a vibrant and and very fascinating um place for engaging the other there's also a vibrant space for and principled argument for leaving one another alone and just letting letting sort of different intellectual groups do their own work and 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 they they don't need to meddle with one another they don't they don't need to be constantly uh dialoguing with others um in a globalized world you know uh, uh um uh you know capitalism running the globe and consumerism and et cetera, et cetera. Um, Look, other knowledge communities have less space than ever to just sort of do their own thing. Right. We see this with uh, Hindu thinkers today. We see this Muslim thinkers today. There's, inevitably something about their intellectual work that has to respond to the West, that has to respond to colonialism, that has to respond to uh, um, um, the the critiques uh, of modernity, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have that space to just ask their own questions and talk amongst themselves. Um, They're strangled. Um, Doing intellectual work in that kind of environment often produces bad knowledge. It often produces desperate knowledge. It often produces uh, poor thinking. Uh, I think that's part of how we've arrived at the situation where we are today, um, where, you know, just parodies of of what could be called knowledge becomes the animating drive of all sorts of ideological movements, political movements, what have you. Uh, I don't know how we go about giving other civilizations the space to just sort of be themselves. Uh, but I think it's crucial that we do find ways to 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 give the rest of the world that kind of space, uh, or we're only going to see this crisis getting worse,
0: in my view. It's a thought-provoking um, end to our conversation. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
1: Thanks so much, Raj. Thanks for making the time.
0: Oh, my pleasure. And for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Shankar Nair who is assistant professor at the university of Virginia. We've been speaking about his brand new 2020 uh, university of California press publication, translating wisdom it's available open access. The link will be in the podcast notes. The book will be covered as part of an American Academy of religion upcoming panel. That link will also be in the podcast notes until next time. Stay safe, stay sane. And, and, Keep contemplating um, the cross-pollination of civilizational ideas. Take care.